It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 28. This is your host, Chris Blanchard. Today's guests are Adam and Mel Millsap, owners of Urban Roots Farm, a four-season micro farm set in the West Central neighborhood of Springfield, Missouri. We talk about their family and neighborhood involvement as they grow about a third of an acre of intensive produce, including three mobile high tunnels. Adam and Mel share their experiences managing the extremely wet weather in Southern Missouri this summer and how they care for the natural landscape in their urban environment. I was really inspired by what they're doing on such a small acreage in an unusual farming environment. I hope you all enjoy the episode. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Audible. Discover the world of audiobooks and absorb yourself in the latest business management texts, farming essays, or all three volumes of The Lord of the Rings. Get your free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. Adam and Mel from Urban Roots Farm, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Chris. It's great to be on here. You know, it's it's always fun when we get to start off having the guest do the tech support. So <laughs> for the listeners, we have I haven't done a call with actually two people on two different Skype accounts. The last time we did a, a two person interview, it was two people on the same landline. So totally 1980s old school. <laughs> and and so this was kind of a nice opportunity. I can tell that Adam and Mel must be a little bit younger than some of the folks <laughs> that I interview on the podcast because now the tech support's running in the other direction. So thanks, Adam. And Adam, Adam's to give out his email sometime during this show so that if any of the listeners have questions <laughs> about how to make stuff work on their computers, you can just feel free to contact Hey, maybe them. that's something we can make money at. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys started Urban Roots Farm there in Springfield, Missouri in 2009, right? Uh, yeah, we conceptualized the farm through 2009, um, and then we put our first crops in the ground in the fall of 2010. So this is your fifth growing season. That's correct. Yeah, we are four and a half growing season. Right, exactly. (laughs) And uh, obviously, uh, starting in the uh, in the fall, we planted in October of that year. Uh, Maybe wasn't optimal, but but we definitely learned a thing or two. It's not a bad time to start unless you kind of get those first year mistakes out of the way in a hurry, right? You bet. (laughs) And get inspired. Well, and you guys are far enough south there in Springfield, which is on the almost on the southern border. You're down near Branson, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're about right 40 on. minutes north of Branson. Okay, so down near Arkansas, and I think I think you actually say that you're in the Ozarks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, which coming from the West Coast originally, I didn't really have any conception that that happened south of me somewhere. I always thought that was off on the on the East Coast somewhere. Oh, yeah. So, well, down not too far from uh, not too far from Memphis, if we want to kind of get the climate right. Yeah, Memphis is uh, a little south and east of us, about about three hour drive, but uh, not too far south, mostly east. Mm-hmm. I think we get harsher winters up here than Memphis. Yeah, definitely uh, a, a little bit. Well, how cold would it get there in the winter time? Because I, like I said in the intro, you guys are a four season operation. They're right in the middle of town, so. What kind of temperatures are you combating in the wintertime? Well, um, you know, that's a ever-changing question, Uh, (laughs) or at least the answer is ever-changing, it seems. Um, You know, when we grew up, both Melissa and I grew up here in Springfield, and growing up here, 
we had winters where it wasn't uncommon for, you know, ponds to freeze over for a month straight or, or more sometimes. Um, but we haven't had a winter like that in probably a decade at least. Um, last winter was uh, a little more of a winter than we've had in probably five years. And we were going, uh, what, two or three days probably where we were in single digit temperatures. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's probably the exception rather than the norm these days. Um, the three seasons before that, uh, I don't think we really dipped out of the twenties much, um, even in nighttime temperatures, um, maybe into single digits a couple of times, but very briefly. So last, last year was a great experience for us. It was really the first year since we've been farming that we felt like we were having a winter, a real winter. I always found that to be one of the hard things about producing in the wintertime was gauging the crops just right. Cause you can have a couple of really mild years and think you can get away with some stuff that you just, you can't do it every year. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, a, a definite learning curve there. In fact, our, our first year, uh, our high tunnels were on order and they were supposed to be coming in in the fall. Uh, and they got pushed to spring. Uh, yeah, February. And it really ended up almost March. Um, and so we had planted three plots out with the intention of building the tunnels and then rolling them over the plots. Uh, and we <laughs> accidentally conducted, conducted the uh, experiment of, of planting uh, not terribly cold tolerant stuff mm-hmm. under low tunnels that, that winter. Um, so that was, that was interesting. Not something yeah. we'd probably get away with most of the time and probably not something we'll do again, but. No, it was nice that our kids were really short then because they could easily <laughs> crawl into the low tunnels <laughs> and get stuff for us. <laughs> <laughs> and how many kids do you have? Two. Two. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how old are they? Um, Bela is nine and Owen is seven. So you guys started the farm with kids already underfoot. Yeah. Yes, we did. (laughs) Although uh, pretty small at that time. They were small. Definitely part of the inspiration though. And and how was that? Um, many levels. Um, I'll let Adam tell you a few of them, but I think one of the the big inspirations for me personally was that I wanted to be with them. I wanted to be a stay at home mom. Um, and then, you know, they're 18 months apart. So it was like breastfeeding for four years. And I quickly realized that, you know, I want to be here. I want to be tied to their life, but I also need to have something outside of my children in order to be the mother that I want to be. So I think finding that niche to where I could work and they could work with me and they could see the happiness, happiness that we could create around a business. I think it was important for me personally as a good mother. So, yeah. And I would, I would say, you know, um, I worked, I worked jobs before this, um, the most recent one before we started the farm was, uh, working on, on the floor of a factory as a welder. Um, and I was working that job as we started our family and it became evident to me very quickly, uh, that I wasn't going to be able to spend the kind of time that I wanted to, uh, in rearing my children, um, working a job like that. Um, and, and basically it was actually a large, uh, motive in starting the farm, um, for us, uh, because we, we both wanted to participate 
in uh, in the formation of our children and the the, uh, the personalities being developed and um you know i didn't i don't feel like um societally and culturally that is the norm anymore the norm is really for one parent to take the lead on that and the other parent to uh to participate on the weekends um and we didn't want that so uh, that you know that's one thing that the farm really allows allows for for us um and of course it's not always uh peachy uh, <laughs> sometimes having uh having the kids around on the farm can can really be a, a challenge um but but overall it's it's something we set out to do and experience that way and it must be interesting doing that on a farm in the city. I mean, a lot of people would start a farm when they had young kids with the idea that they were going to escape the city and give their kids this rural lifestyle where they can have a, a lot of freedom to roam and, you know, be, be inculcated with all those rural values. And you guys kind of went the opposite direction and bought a piece of land in the middle of Springfield. Yeah, we did. Um, I definitely think there was a time there where we uh, daydreamed about buying this house in downtown Springfield and flipping it and moving to the country. Um, But pre-kids, we quickly fell in love with the location of being close to downtown. Um, We love being able to ride our bikes and walk to places. And we like that people can come see us and, you know, community dinners are really easy, easy to get to. Um, I think the hardest part for me has been with having the children and the urban farm is, is more just the, uh, the neighborhood that we're in. It's, it's not a very safe neighborhood by all means. (laughs) So that's been something that we've kind of had to embrace and, um, and roll with, Um, But I think having the farm here, that's definitely created a healthy environment for not only our kids, but the kids in this neighborhood. Um, So it's kind of a safe place to to play and visit. Yeah, I would agree with that for the most part. Um, But I will say that uh, having an urban farm, for me, there are definitely days that I dream of having some ground, um, for kids to run on and, uh, you know, spending time, uh, where you can just let your kids run and really not worry. Um, which isn't really how things are here. Um, but I think the, uh, the benefits of being in town outweigh, outweigh that desire for, for us at least. So how big of a piece of property do you have there? Uh, the ground is actually 1.5 acres, um, and kind of give you, uh, an overhead layout of it. Um, we have a quarter acre, um, up front by the street. Um, there's a driveway that comes in beside that, um, about 50 feet back on the property. And, uh, then there's a, a large parking lot there and that parking lot, um, used to serve, uh, about 30 apartment units back there. Um, and there are still eight units there, which we own and they play a, a role in, um, in making the farm viable, making it work for us. Um, land in town is pretty expensive. So that helps out. Um, but, uh, the other units burnt down about 20, 25 years ago, something like that. Um, and that's why this odd, 
you know, acre and a half exists in the middle of a residential neighborhood um, here in Springfield. Um, so that large parking lot has a big greenhouse sitting right in the middle of it. Greenhouse is about 20 by 75. Um, and then behind that greenhouse to the north of it is a large field um, where we have, I say large field, gosh, uh, <laughs> uh, our largest field, I should say, um, where we have nine plots um, that are, are 30 by 48. Um, and they're designed so that the, uh, the high tunnels can be moved over those those nine plots. Um, and then we also, uh, recently constructed or actually are still working on, um, a pack shed, uh, that's, that's up by the greenhouse. Um, so there's still a good bit of open space that we hope to develop, um, in the future into more growing space. Um, right now we're actually cult cultivating just about a third of an acre, um, out of that acre and a half. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's, I mean, really not even uh, not even an acre. You guys are really on the micro side of things. Absolutely. We, we definitely consider ourselves a, a micro farm. Um, and honestly, even when, when we're using all the ground that we can over here, I think we'll still, uh, be considered probably micro. Um, we have room to grow, which is really exciting. <laughs> right. That's great. So tell me, of course, my first question, when I hear a third of an acre, under cultivation. Um, and how many high tunnels is, are, are rotating on that? Three, three high tunnels on three, ground. three mobile high That's tunnels. Right. Okay. Um, and, and are you guys making a living off of that? Almost. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, five years in, uh, we are, uh, absolutely still getting our heads around how to do a good job of this. Um, you know, we, we did a lot of reading, uh, before we got into this, um, we did as much research and, and took that as far as, as you can without, you know, experiential learning. Um, but we have been very inefficient to this point, I would say. Um, we are, we're definitely, I think this year and, and really the latter half of last year, probably, um, where that was when we began to recognize or feel maybe like we could begin to develop systems that we recognized what those systems needed to look like um, and that we could begin to develop them uh, in a way that would make us more efficient and um, and capable of generating a, an income for a family of four. Um, so, and I, short answer, I'm really curious what kind of systems you're, what kind of systems you're looking at with that. Is that, are those production systems? Are those employee management systems? Um, what are the, what are the holdups? Yes and yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's everything. Um, it's uh, recognizing some mistakes that we've made along the way. Um, you know, Melissa and I really didn't have agricultural backgrounds. Um, we, uh, we really let the weeds get out of hand over here in our, in our first couple of years. And as, as you know, you pay the price for that for a while afterwards. Um, so, you know, learning that, uh, that is of critical importance and that if we're not managing that stuff, um, as we go along, it's going to bite us in the butt and the, the labor that it takes to deal with it grows exponentially. Um, I think that has actually been a theme for us, uh, in our conversations about how we need to move forward on the farm, um, and get better at what we're doing, uh, is, 
you know, recognizing those those tasks that if uh, if they're put off, the amount of labor that it takes to deal with them later grows exponentially. Um, and because of the nature of farming, everything keeps growing, whether you deal with it or not. Um, there are a lot of those on a farm. So um, currently, I can, I can give you a concrete example. Um, uh, currently, uh, and for the last five years, uh, we do all of our vegetable washing and packing uh, in the open air, behind the greenhouse, um, in the weather. Um, you know, if it's real rough, we might hang a tarp up over ourselves. Um, but being a four season farm, um, we do sometimes move the sinks in, into the greenhouse, uh, in the winter time, but, um, being a four season farm, you know, that means that we're out there in the elements, um, in pretty much every type of weather that the Ozarks throws at us. And, um, that is not an efficient way to, uh, to harvest and prepare vegetables for market. Uh, <laughs> Right. Um, so recognizing that we had to make a change there, um, that's what the impetus for, for building the pack shed was. And, um, and, you know, again, the mistakes we've made, um, recognizing that those types of infrastructure improvements, um, are much easier to accomplish before you are trying to manage the day-to-day -day tasks of farming. Um, so had we come in here, if I, if I were to start this now, knowing what I know, um, there are a lot of infrastructure, uh, projects that we would have knocked out before we put anything in the ground. Um, because once you've got stuff in the ground, it becomes very difficult, um, to manage your crops in addition to building infrastructure. At the same time, it's hard to know what you need until you get underway. Boy, that's the I truth, mean, right? <laughs> you know, so, I mean, not not to mention the cash is always tight in those first years. Trying to trying to make all those capital investments up front, I think, is a real challenge. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. So, I know we spent we spent a year packing under under an easy up canopy <laughs> on a you know that's because that's that's what we had to do. That's yeah. right. So that's right. Tell me a little bit about your neighborhood there. Mel, you mentioned it's not the nicest neighborhood. I, I assume that that in part goes along with being able to afford enough land to have one and a half acres in the middle in the middle of the city. Yeah, part of it. Um, the let's see. So the, the neighborhood, it's called West Central Neighborhood. Um, and we've got two elementary schools and one middle school bordering the neighborhood. Um, the actual downtown Springfield is part of this, the spread of West central neighborhood. Um, and it is currently, um, from the statistics that we've gotten, um, you know, it's the lowest income neighborhood in Springfield. Um, we've got the highest crime rates in this area. Um, there is lots of drug use around here. Um, but, you know, there's also a lot of uh, pedestrians. A lot of the kids play outside. They aren't playing inside on their Nintendos and their iPhones. Um, so people are out all the time. Um, and honestly, that can, that can be an advantage for us, uh, cause we're outside all the time too. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of downfalls about West, West Central and living in this part of town, but 
it's also just a few blocks from MSU. Um, and just on the other side of campus is literally one of the nicest neighborhoods in Springfield. So, um, so it's a unique place, but it's also um, a place that you can get to very quickly, very easy. So we do have lots of schools that come um, and visit. It's always inspiring to me to be out in the field um, in what I consider the hood of Springfield and see an elementary school bus pull into the parking lot and the kids get out because all they've been told is that they're coming to a farm. And when they pull in, you can just see it on their faces like, what? <laughs> Where have you taken us? Um, and so while we've, we've got all of this negativity, I think, um, I would call it negativity that surrounds the immediate community. We've also got, um, we've got this access. We're easy to get to. And, um, you know, we even get the Domino's driver. He'll be cruising by going from what I consider a little too fast and he'll slam on his brakes and pop it in reverse and go, you know, come backwards into the parking lot and be like, what is this place? What are you guys doing? You know, or the UPS guy or the mailman, you know, it, it's just, um, I, not exaggerating every day somebody stops by the farm that did not know we were here and does not know what we do and wants to know why we do it. So, um, that is just a huge driving force for me. Um, and while I do feel all of this, you know, somewhat danger around us, um, I think for the most part, our neighborhood has kind of embraced us. Um, we get a lot of volunteers and people stop by whether, you know, it's in and out of their sober state and they'll help us pull weeds and move rocks and we'll give them <laughs> produce. And um, so it, it's it's a unique place. You know, I think we, we have to be careful. We have to um, second guess and always kind of just, you know, judge your character. But and I would I would say, too. Um that it is a very unique place in that one night we're having a cocktail social hour <laughs> over here. Um, and you know, we're, we're lining up the Cadillacs and Lexuses down the street. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, the next day, the, uh, semi homeless gentleman who lives down the street or somewhere on the street, um, is over here in, in the garden, uh, working to take some food home. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that, that's a mix that doesn't happen in a lot of settings. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I would throw in there is that the, the neighborhood is improving. Um, is. and that was another motive when we started the farm. Um, we, we bought this 1907 Victorian, um, over here when we first got married. Um, and so we've lived in this house for almost 13 years, um, and began the remodeling process on it. Um, the lot that the farm is on is actually next door. Um, and, that place, you know, when we moved in here, we were very young. We were very idealistic, um, maybe a little naive. Um, we expected the neighborhood to turn around a lot faster than it has. Um, they, uh, there were a lot of people buying houses over here with the intention of flipping them or uh, at the very least turning them back to single family homes from from converted duplexes and quadplexes. Um, 
And, and so we were pretty hopeful that, uh, the neighborhood would turn around very quickly and, you know, five years in six years in, um, we're looking around and, and saying, wow, this is not where we expected this neighborhood to be by now. Um, but I think that was a catalyst for us to say, okay, so how can we be more active in affecting that change? Um, because it's obviously not happening, uh, fast enough when we're all just standing around watching for it to happen. Um, and the, the place next door was one of the places that was an obvious epicenter for criminal activity. Um, the apartments there, they, they run down one side of the, um, the, the property. And so it's a pretty large open space with just that small apartment building running down one side. Um, they were not well cared for at all. Um, the people who lived in them, um, were not, I would say respected by the, the property owner. Um, their concerns were not met. Um, and as is pretty typical in that kind of scenario, uh, I don't think he spent a lot of time, um, screening his tenants to ensure that they were people that the other folks who live over here would want to be neighbors with. Yeah. Um, right. and so, uh, it became a very obvious sore thumb in the neighborhood that we felt like we could address. Um, and we actually considered a few different ideas, um, for what we could have done with that place. Um, and, and farming was what won out, um, that answered a lot of other, uh, challenges and interests for, for us in our lives, um, and how we wanted to move forward in life. Um, and so that, that was the winner, uh, <laughs> of, of how we could address this place that we didn't feel good about raising children next door to. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, so it's not like you guys moved there with the intention of saving the neighborhood and having an urban farm. You know, we moved here because we are suckers. <laughs> yeah. uh, Purely accidental. We, uh, when, when Melissa and I met, we were working at a, a, a pizza house downtown and, um, the guy who owned the, the place that we were working, um, the good old South Avenue pizza company in the bar next door. Um, he lived in this neighborhood. He had purchased a house that he was uh, slowly but surely renovating. And, uh, you know, we, we had announced our intentions to get married and he said, Hey, I've got a place for you. And, uh, and so he showed us this place and we, we immediately went nuts for it and, uh, and jumped in, but that's actually what brought us to the neighborhood. Um, yeah. and, and the farm just seems to have worked out serendipitously. I love that. That's, that's just, that's great. You got where you are cause you're suckers. That's that's right. <laughs> and we continue to do so. <laughs> you're yeah. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I remember in my, in my neighborhood where I started farming, uh, you know, was, was in very rural part of Northeast Iowa and, and it, you know, it was a place that was, you know, we had a couple of hog confinements nearby and we had, um, I mean, not, not so close that it was, that it was problematic for us most of the time, but they were around and you knew that. And, and it was a lot of corn and beans and a lot of, of hills in, in, uh, in bear corn and soy. And, and it was, you know, when we started doing it, it, be, it became something that the first year or two, the neighbors were like, Oh, that's kind of weird. <laughs> and, and then after a while, it became something that I think people did take some pride in, uh, that this was something that was actually happening in their neighborhood. It was new and it was different and it was bringing some life to a place that where the, you know, that had been, 
in our situation had been abandoned for several years before we before we took over the took over the house and the property. So okay. I, I think kind of not unlike what you've run into, I think there's a lot of energy around any time that a young person is getting back into farming, but especially when you engage in that food production side of things where people really can see, oh, there's something happening here that directly relates to my life. Yeah. You know, it's that's one of my favorite things about farming um, is that it, it unifies people. Um, and it does that across party lines and it does that pretty much across all lines. Um, I think you're hard pressed to find someone who would argue with the idea of growing quality food. Um, <laughs> and, and that certainly has been our experience. Um, that's something else that happens at the farm. Uh, when we have, we have farm to table dinners, um, pretty regularly. And, uh, you know, the, the crowd is very eclectic in their, in their belief structures and in their politics, um, and in their, their income diversity. Um, you and our CSA members are a crazy mix. Right. And, uh, and you know, it, it's, it's something that they're all unified by. Um, everybody likes good quality food. It's hard to argue with that. Now, some of them may argue about the price of it, um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's hard to argue with the idea of growing good food and doing so locally. So speaking of price, where are you selling your products? Are you selling there in your local neighborhood? Uh, we don't do a lot of sales in our neighborhood. Um, so when we started this thing out, well, let me answer that first. Um, we sell through a CSA. Um, in the summertime, we run a 65 member CSA over a 24 week season. Um, in the wintertime, we run a 24 week season as well. Uh, and we've had about 25 members. I think we'll probably bump that up to 30 or 35 this year. Um, we do, uh, a large farmer's market in Springfield. Um, and basically we utilize that farmer's market as an outlet for our surplus. Um, particularly because when we were getting started in this and starting a CSA, we wanted to work that buffer in there. Um, right. And so mark market served as a way to dispose of the buffer when we didn't need it um, and still does that to a degree for us. Um, and then uh, we've just started uh, attending a little market that we, we are starting up um, near a local foods grocery store here in town that, um, the uh, purveyor of is, is very generous with us and allowing us to set up and sell produce there on Saturdays. Um, and then, uh, we also have a couple of really great restaurants that we work with here in Springfield. Um, and that's something that we're, we're really excited about because when we started this a couple of years ago, it seemed like there were a lot of chefs who in concept, we're really excited about utilizing local in-season produce, um, but didn't really have their heads wrapped around how that has to work yet. Um, and I think now we're, we're starting to mature in the, uh, in the restaurants in Springfield and the chefs are starting to get their heads wrapped around, uh, what it takes to, to be able to bring seasonal produce and, and the freshest stuff they can get, uh, to their patrons on a regular basis. Um, and of course, primarily that's having a flexible menu. So. I was going to ask you that. I, I mean, I have my ideas about what it takes, but what else beyond the flexible menu have you found that 
you've had to educate chefs on? You know, they have to be willing to, um, uh, have, have a real relationship with a farmer, uh, <laughs> rather than, um, filling out an order form and, and shooting it into their, uh, their food purveyor, um, and expecting it to show up on the truck the next day. Um, they have to be willing to participate in a relationship, um, particularly on our scale. Um, you know, I know that there are some, uh, some cities where food hubs kind of, um, bridge that gap. Right. And, and create a more similar scenario to what they're used to. But, but we really like having that relationship, um, with chefs and Melissa is masterful in um, in having that relationship and building that relationship with, with, uh, chefs and, and cooks alike. When, when you describe those markets about, do you mind sharing how much you're grossing a year on your third of an acre? No, not at all. Um, so our sales last year were around $80,000. Um, we netted, uh, more like 25 or 30. Um, and where we would like to be, uh, with all of that is we would, we would like to be keeping about 55 of that. Um, and, and like I said before, uh, we're still tremendously inefficient. Um, if I, if I walk the field right now, I better let Melissa answer this cause she spends a lot more time in the field than I do right now. Uh, <laughs> You'll uh, say it wrong no matter. <laughs> what, how many, what percentage of our beds would you say right now are non-productive? Um, I'd say right now about a fourth of our beds are not in production right. as of today. Hopefully that'll change by Friday. And, and not by any intentional, uh, reasoning, but just because we're behind, um, you know, on things that have been overtaken with weeds, things that, uh, have been taken out by insects, um, things of that nature that, uh, just, just aren't, aren't producing right now. Um, well, and you guys have been savaged by the weather down there this year, yeah. haven't you? The rain has been out of control. It has been a weird, weird year. Yeah. I mean, your, your Facebook feed had a picture of your son rescuing a duck (laughs) from a flood. When when you got to save the ducks, you know, you've got issues. That's right. Um, Yeah. It's been, there's been a lot of water and we, we, um, Oh, I guess it's been two summers ago that we ended up d- putting in our trenches and kind of grading the backfield, um, which was, again, one of those things that we should have done earlier, but we really didn't know we needed to do until we were into production. But, um, you know, so I felt pretty well prepared. We hadn't had any problems since we put in the rain garden and the French drains and graded it and bermed it until this year. But, you know, the ground has just stayed wet. I mean, there hasn't been a day that I could walk out and not find wet soil. Um, And when it rains now, it runs off almost immediately. The ground's just so saturated. Yeah. And it's not like you can install drainage tile there in the middle of the city. No, really not. And, uh, and we actually, we put a a large rain garden in a couple of years ago. Um, and that spot where the rain garden is the low point on the farm. Um, it's not actually the low point on the farm. It's the low point in our drainage, uh, uphill of us, but, 
uh, about two and a half acres actually drained to that point. Um, and of course, because we're in an urban environment, there's a lot of non-permeable surfaces. And, uh, and when you get the, the torrential rainfalls that we've been having, um, you know, a, a two inch rainfall event and in a couple of hours, those kinds of events, um, you know, in an inch of rain, we see 35,000 gallons of water run through that, that, uh, rain garden and, it has the potential to do a lot of damage back there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I'm not familiar with the concept of a rain garden. It sounds like something that I should know what you're talking about, but sure. So, um, a couple of years ago, we decided that we wanted to, uh, work towards being a zero runoff site. Um, you know, in urban environments for, the last 50 years, the attitude towards dealing with storm runoff has basically been, you know, put it in a container and run it off as rapidly as possible to the creeks and rivers. Um, and that has, I, I grew up on the creeks and rivers around here. The Ozarks is known for the beauty of our creeks and, and rivers, and they are amazing. Um, I grew up spending a lot of time on them and they're very dear to me. And uh, I have watched uh, over you know the last 25 years, um, I've been aware of the changes that are happening uh, on those creeks, and and basically what's happening is we build more and more permeable, non-permeable rather surface um, in our urban environments, and we run that water off to the creeks as fast as we possibly can. Um, the creeks are not designed to handle that quantity of water at that speed, um, they get washed out, they get wider, they get shallower. Um, it races to our rivers and has the same effect there. Um, and it completely changes the ecosystem in those creeks and rivers. Um, it creates a shallow, warm place instead of a deep, cool place. Um, and basically has a major disruptive effect on the native species that depend on those existing ecosystems. Um, and so because all of that is extremely dear to me, um, you know, I'm of the, of the thought, um, the, the mentality that what really needs to happen is individual property owners need to be dealing with their own runoff. Um, so if, if I put a big parking lot in, it doesn't mean that I need to hold that water and then let it run into the creeks. It means I need to put that water back on the ground here. Um, and the same goes for water that comes off my house. Uh, and it's very, it's something that is manageable. It's something we can do. Um, it takes a little more, uh, effort than what we're doing right now. Um, but it would really solve a lot of problems. So Springfield has also been experiencing a lot of, uh, flooding in places where it has not traditionally in the last, oh, I'd say decade really. Um, because we're just, our rainfall patterns are changing. We get these massive yeah. dumps, um, followed by periods of drought. Um, and then another massive dump. And so, uh, the rain garden is part of how you deal with that, that runoff. Um, basically rain gardens intention is to hold water for approximately 48 hours at most and let that water infiltrate back into the ground. Um, we have a karst topography here in the Ozarks, um, and you know, surface water is very effectively filtered, um, by that, by that topography. Um, and so if we can, uh, if we can do more of that, putting water back in the ground and recharging our aquifers, um, then, uh, then we can feel better about 
utilizing that water. Um, otherwise we're just, uh, we're just jetting that surface water down to the Gulf of Mexico as fast as we can. <laughs> yeah. So, so in a practical sense, the rain garden is, uh, flood tolerant plantings in a, in a deliberately low location. Is that, is that mm-hmm. how you describe it? I just managed to not answer your question at all, didn't I, Chris? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's okay. It, it, hey, you know, it, it happens. I'm, I'm the interviewer. Um, I'm supposed to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, this isn't this isn't like a this isn't like a a, a political debate right, or anything. Right. Um, you know, I I actually will follow up. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, from a just physical description of the rain garden, um, ours holds about 12,000 gallons. It's uh, 20 feet across, uh, six feet deep. Um, it, uh, like you said, is planted with uh, marginal plants that can handle can handle dry conditions or or flooding. Um, we have a big willow tree planted on the edge of it. Um, because uh, trees are extremely effective at drinking that water up and putting it back into the air, which is another place we'd love to put it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's that's the concept. It also leaks. It's a pond that leaks. We want it to leak. Um, it's important for it to leak. As a matter of fact, ours needs to be cleaned out a little bit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's that's the basis of it. Um, and this the phase two on our farm for that. Uh, that rain garden actually has a four inch drain pipe in it, um, stand pipe, uh, that, that drains towards the back of the property daylights at the back of the property. Um, and phase two of that is building a large berm back there to create a, a larger, uh, rain garden area that would handle, uh, a lot more of that, the percentage of what's falling here. It's really interesting because I wouldn't imagine when I think urban farm, I think about needing to maximize your economic productivity. And it's probably kind of narrow minded of me, but I wouldn't think about really enhancing those ecological services that farmland provides. And that oftentimes we would think of if you had 40 or 80 acres out in the country, that's way to go. (laughs) Thanks. Um, I don't think that we could do what we do without thinking about that stuff. Um, just because of who we are and where our hearts are, but also because we strongly believe in education. Um, and while it does, it does help. It makes a big difference on our piece of property. But I think one of the greater benefits is that all of the tours that we do and uh, people that come through, we can see that they can see how we do what we do and we can always talk to them about how they could scale it up. So it's, it's a great demonstration of what others could do. Yeah, we, we absolutely have a goal here of being a working model for how agriculture should function. Um, And that's, obviously something we're still working on, uh, on, on modeling. Um, but if, you know, if we're ignoring those types of details, um, then, then uh, we're not, we're not doing what we set out to do. Um, I usually say that we, we look at every decision we make here through two lenses. Um, they're both, they're both sustainability lenses and uh, one is ecological sustainability um, and the other is financial sustainability. And, you know, so far we haven't found those things to be so at odds with one another that they can't coexist. Um, but if we, if we ever do come to a decision where they can't coexist, then, then we will move on and find something else to do because um, if we can't serve both of those needs um, financially, we won't be here anymore. And ecologically, uh, we don't want to be here anymore. 
That's great. I really like how you describe that as a need that you have as well as a need that the farm has. Absolutely. Let's take a break right here and get a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Carl Hammer, the founder and the owner of the company, likes to describe potting soil as a set of promises, a promise that it has the nutrients the plant needs, that it has the microbes the plant needs to help forage those nutrients, and that it's free of weed seeds. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it year after year in soil blocks and in traditional cell flats. We even grew rosemary plants in pots for multiple years, a real testament to the structure of the soil, which can keep the microbes alive over an extended period of time and provide good aeration for the roots on an ongoing basis. When you put plants in containers, whether it's a five-year-old rosemary in a 20-gallon nursery can or a 24-day-old lettuce seedling in a 10-20 cell tray, you need an optimized matrix of materials that can produce a healthy plant within a restricted media volume. Vermont compost potting soils provide just that consistently year after year. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Audible where you can get a free audiobook download when you sign up for a free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. I've been a fan of the spoken word since I read along with children's stories on a portable 78 RPM record player. I love the way that the engaging in the oral tradition works with a different part of my brain than reading does and the presence that it brings to ideas and voices. And it's so easy to tap into spoken word audio now that you probably carry an iDevice or an Android with you just about everywhere you go. Audible has over 100,000 titles that you can choose from, ranging from great science fiction and romance to self-help and business titles. I want to recommend one book that will resonate with anybody who has run a business or a farm, The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. Gerber lays out the fundamental challenge of making the leap from being great at doing the work to becoming great at running a business and provides practical suggestions for fostering that change. Just go to audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer to get your free download of The E-Myth Revisited or any other book from Audible's extensive library. And now back to the show with Adam and Mel Millsap. All right. So you've got the three mobile high tunnels there um, that are that you're rotating across these nine 30 by 48 patches of ground. Can you tell us more about how that system works? Go for it, Adam. <laughs> I can move them. <laughs> yeah, she's good Wait, at moving you, them. You can move them. So let's let's start there. <laughs> okay, well, not because me I got alone. it. I, got, I mean, I'm only 130 pounds, but. <laughs> Well, I got into mobile high tunnels uh, way back. I, I built the I built my first mobile high tunnel in the fall of 1998 out in Maine. And then and then we had a couple of them on my farm in Iowa. And, and you had to get a tow truck in to move them. I mean, there wasn't you know, this was a winches and cables operation. So you must have something that's a little bit more elegant than that. We do. We do. And he'll explain to you that. But, yeah, it takes um, it takes me plus two, maybe three people about my size and we can unanchor them and push them across the field and re-anchor them. So it's, you know, it, when we first started out, it was almost an entire day to move a high tunnel. Um, however, we've gotten the process down to where we can easily move all three in a day. Um, so that's something we've gotten better at. <laughs> But yeah, that's actually a perfect example of, of what we were talking about earlier with becoming more efficient. Um, and obviously the more efficient we become in the tasks we have to do, the more time we have to do more tasks and the more food we can grow and the more food we can sell. Um, 
but the the tunnels are a a prime example of that um and that's everything from technique um technique is probably the biggest part on the tunnels um you know, that accumulation of knowledge of here are the things that you really have to do before you try and move this thing, or it's going to be really difficult to move it. Um, and uh, some improvements to the technical side of the tunnels as well. Um, some improvements to the actual mechanisms um, involved in moving the tunnels. So um, why don't you tell them just basically what the rails look like? And yeah. Sure, sure. So um, our tunnels are, are stationary tunnels that we converted to mobile tunnels. Um, so we purchased stationary kits um, and then we made some structural upgrades and, um, and bolted wheels on the bottom of the bows. Um, our wheels are uh, cantilever gate rollers for like commercial chain link um, gates. And, uh, they're, they're large cast wheels. They're really heavy duty. Um, and I think they would, they have to be, um, they don't actually carry a lot of load individually at any given time. Uh, but they are definitely point loaded as we roll, as we roll the tunnels. So that's important. Um, they, uh, yeah, they just bolt on the bottom of the bows. Um, they sit on, our, our tunnels are the two in, oh, I think it's 15, 16th or something like that, um, galvanized tubing. Um, so they, they sit on that tubing on the ground. Um, and so we just have one extra set of rails um, for all three tunnels and we leapfrog that around the field as needed. Um, we slide a smaller tube um, inside where the, the two tubes join up to keep them from running around and losing wheels, um, rolling yeah. around and losing wheels. Um, we have a bridging device that we built to, uh, to jump the swale that runs between our plots, um, in order to deal with runoff. Uh, and that device just pops on to the two rails, the one that this, the tunnel's sitting on and the one that we're going to move it on to. Um, so we get all that in place. Uh, then we flip up our end walls if we're in the winter months, um, the bottom of the end wall is, is, um, is hinged. So it folds up and that's actually something okay. we could have done better. We could have made it fold up higher. Uh, we can't roll it off of things that are covered with low tunnels right now. Um, so how, how high is that right now? Uh, right now it's about two feet and, uh, really it, it should be more like three or three and a half. Um, and it wouldn't have been hard to do that had we recognized the need to do so early on. Um, we have wood end walls in them, which is a, a regret. Um, obviously more affordable than steel end walls, but um, because of the nature of the mobile tunnel, um, having a lot more flex in it than a stationary tunnel does, um, the, the lumber end walls tend to pull themselves apart a little bit. Um, right. So it would have been better to do steel on those. Um, our anchoring system is really basic. Um, it's just, uh, you know, a couple of eye bolts, um, through, through two bows, um, a V of cable coming down to the ground, um, and a turnbuckle on that. Um, we started out with, uh, 
our anchors. Yeah, we use duckbill anchors, which are really cool devices um, that you put on the end of a rod, you drive them down 30 inches, and then you set them back with a farm jack. um, And they go horizontal because of their shape. They they plow in horizontally, um, and they are impossible to pull out. Um, But... Uh, those were stationary anchors for a mobile tunnel and proved to be very difficult to locate. <laughs> right. Um, and that, uh, then they're done that. Right. Yeah. And, and that actually was one of the major improvements that shortened up the time that we spent moving tunnels. Um, our, uh, our anchors that we use now are much more basic, but work so much better. Um, we just welded some one by one square tube, uh, and a little cross, we welded a section of chain to that, um, you know, with uh, five or six links on it. Um, and then we take three foot rebar um, and drive it. Uh, we, and this is critical. You have to jam that cross down in the ground before you drive your rebar through. Otherwise it'll work its way off the top of the rebar. But if you jam it down in the ground and then you drive rebar through it at those, um, those 90 degree angles to one another, it works great. Um, and with the links of chain on there, we spend a lot less time fiddling with the turnbuckles and the, uh, the cable saddles, um, trying to get the cables the right length to anchor things down, because all we have to do is take our D-ring and connect it to whichever link of chain we can, we can reach and then tighten things up. Uh, I like that. Do you have a picture of that that you could share with us that we could put in the show notes? I don't, but I'd be glad to take one. If you could snap one before Thursday, that would be awesome. Not a problem. Okay. You bet. All right. All right. So that's, yeah, that's the basis of, uh, of how they work. Um, improvements that we would like to, uh, to put on the tunnels in the next couple of years, um, our ridge vents, um, that could be huge for us. Uh, you know, we touched on our, our latitude here and what that means for us a little bit ago, but, um, with regard to the tunnels, what it means is there's a really long period of time where we have to be venting the tunnels, um, during the day and closing them up at night. Um, because we are fairly, fairly temperate here. Um, yeah. it's too cold to leave them open, but, but they've got to be vented cause they'll go to a hundred degrees in a heartbeat in the winter. Um, so some automatically opening, uh, ridge vents would make an enormous difference for us as far as I think health of plants, because we don't always get to them when they need to be vented. Um, and, uh, and also for labor reduction. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, we had automated ridge vents that, that ran the length of our, of our greenhouses, high tunnels. Right. And what was, what was so great about those was they, we didn't have to be out there as soon as the sun came up in the morning, you know, because they were automated, they, they went up right. And we got that initial bit of cooling and, you know, especially on Sunday mornings, that was really welcome. I think it's a huge improvement. Yeah. (laughs) Now you guys are growing both winter and summer crops Mm -hmm. in these, in these mobile tunnels, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can walk through our rotation real quick. Um, Right now we do three moves per year on our tunnels. Um, we might do four moves eventually, but we're just not that good yet. Um, you know, most of what, I mean, most of what everything, um, having to do with our tunnels is, is basically based off of Elliot Coleman's writings. Um, and, uh, you know, whether that's the, the concept of a mobile tunnel or, um, whether that's, uh, the, the rotations, but, um, for us seasonally, uh, we start the cycle. I say we start the cycle, um, 
in late December, early January, um, we're planting crops in there that wouldn't ordinarily go out till, uh, you know, mid February, um, late February. Uh, so we're getting a nice, uh, month, month and a half jump on that. Um, what kind of, what kind of crops are we talking? Lettuces, greens, um, Root crops. crops. Um, yeah, that's, and those would, those would normally go out late February in your area. You'd be pushing it with some of those, um, traditional, okay. uh, traditional lettuce planting day in Southwest Missouri is Valentine's day. Um, so that gives you an idea of, of where we fall on that spectrum. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we can take a risk at that time of year with some of yeah. those things. And we're putting more um, yeah. spinach and stuff like that. Basically any of our spring produce we're putting out earlier. Um, but the, I guess the unique part is we're still planting basically every other week, even through the winter time, since we're a four season farm. And since I have my CSA members and my market members taking everything, as soon as I have a row open, I'm putting something else in. Um, but the hardest part for me, whenever it comes to, especially February, it's just trying to figure out how those those plants that we plant and they get established in January, February. Then when we move the tunnel in like Marchish, um, they tend to get that shock um, because it's so warm and then it's cold. So I'll get beets sometimes that'll bolt prematurely. Um, right. Yeah, and I think the the thing that we're learning there is. Uh, First of all, I think the ridge fence would go a long way to solve that problem um, because we wouldn't have those spikes in temperature on a daily basis that seem to induce bolting and a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but then also taking a couple of days to put row cover on, but open the tunnel up um, before we move the tunnel. Um, and that's another one of those things where because we're always running on the farm, we always feel like we've got the next thing to get to. Um, and I think I, I attribute that to inefficiency. Um, you know, once we are efficient enough that we are able to plan those types of things and execute them on, on that planned timeline, um, I think we could do that. Um, we could mm -hmm. be putting row cover out, um, you know, putting low tunnels out and, uh, dropping the sidewalls for a couple of days to kind of minimize that shock, um, on the plants. But, uh, that would be smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are lots of smart things that we know we should be doing that we just aren't doing yet. Um, it's, I think one of our biggest frustrations right now is that we're, we feel like we're at that stage, um, in startup of, uh, recognizing a lot of the things that need to be happening, um, but still feeling like we're spinning our wheels on some of them because we're, uh, we're dealing with inefficiency and we don't have time to implement some of those things yet. Uh, I kind of liken it to being a two-year-old, you know, <laughs> you know, the fifth year on the farm is about like being two years old in development because you, you know, that there are things that you should be able to do mm -hmm. and you just can't quite pull it off yet. That's right. Yeah. And, I, and it more. just pisses you off, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? It really does. Yeah. <laughs> it is. You just, you just feel shackled all the time. Um, and you know, I, <laughs> I think in the startup world, they call it the, the uh, trough of despair, um, <laughs> which is right. maybe a little extreme, <laughs> but, um, you know, 
yeah, just having that. Cause when you start out, you're just, you're so energetic. You're so excited about it. We were anyway, um, that we were absolutely willing to work 80 hours a week and sun up to sundown every day and, and keep right on trucking when we had stuff to do inside afterwards. Um, and, uh, you know, five years in with a family and other, other obligations related to that stuff. Um, it becomes a lot harder to do that on a regular basis. And, uh, and the excitement has worn off a little bit. Um, we're still pretty excited about what we do, but certainly not quite like we were in that first year and a half or so. Um, and so, you know, it is, it's, it's hard to, uh, to pull yourself up by those bootstraps and, uh, and put in that extra work it takes to get over the hump so you can be more efficient. And I'll let you know how it works out when we get there. Uh. <laughs> Check in your seven. See. Okay. Well, if you make it to year seven, you're golden. So that's what I've seen. We do, so. we do have the advantage too, I will say. Uh, my brother farms north of town um, and utilizes very similar practices on a slightly larger scale. Um, and he's three years ahead of us on this. And so we have that that shining example of having an, an opportunity to have seen him when he was struggling, have been able to be at his farm when he was struggling and see what wasn't going right. Um, and maybe be a little overly critical because we hadn't experienced it. Ourselves <laughs> <yet>. <laughs> um, and, uh, and now, you know, he's really rocking it and we can, we can look out there and see, uh, where we're headed. Um, if, if we can just persevere, I said, yeah. that's, that's I'm, good. I'm still very motivated and excited about it all. I mean, I love going out there and working. So I love what we do. I don't, I can't think of anything else I'd rather do. And I guess, well, it's hard. Adam is very logical and I'm very emotional about everything. So when he starts talking about like, you know, just efficiency and stuff like that, it, it all makes sense to me. But yeah, then I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to wrap my head around this? You mean I have to do this better than what I'm doing now? <laughs> but, but I do always have hope because while we're not making exactly what we want to make financially, I think we can because like I said earlier, we still have so much improvement to to do and more land that we can grow on just here, you know? So, um, we have so many opportunities still. Opportunities for improvement, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So I'm curious, I mean, you talk about that, that tension between the, between the emotional side and the rational side. And, and I see that on a lot of farms where you've got, you know, one person who's very linear and we need to improve this and then we're going to improve that and, and, you know, stepping through stuff. And then another partner who tends to go out and, and just jump into whatever they feel like needs to be jumped into mm -hmm. and just start working at it without whatever tools are at hand. Mm -hmm. Um, do you guys, how do you resolve that tension between the two of you? Oh, you Alyssa, know, <laughs> our farm manager. <laughs> a, a weekly, a weekly yelling match followed by um, our farm manager uh, talking with Noah. <laughs> um, no, it is. It's a challenge for sure. Yeah. Um, we. It's also. I should throw in there. Um, right now, I am 
spending a lot more time on infrastructure improvement and getting our office stuff straight um, than I am in the field. And Melissa is primarily managing the field and uh, making sure that work is getting done. So, you know, we have a pretty severe division of labor there right now. Um, However, I still have a lot of opinions about how those things should be happening. Oh, out. does he? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, obviously I have to be very careful about how I, um, talk about these concepts for improving e- efficiency on the farm, um, and ensure that, that I don't, um, that I'm not just putting down the way things are being done on the farm. Um, and sometimes I'm good at that and sometimes I'm not, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but usually what, what happens is, um, you know, after a couple of days of, of letting it soak and thinking about it, um, I think oftentimes at this stage, uh, Mel hears, me saying, here's more work you should be doing. Um, when I'm, when I'm really trying to, uh, introduce strategies that I feel like will reduce the amount of labor that we have to do in the long run. Um, but it's like you said, um, you know, you're, when you're implementing those strategies and you're already in full swing of farming, um, it is added work for a period. You don't see the benefit of those improvements um, right off the bat. And I would think one of the special challenges that that you guys would have as a four seasoned farm is that there's not really time to sit down and strategize and say, this is what we're going to do differently because you're always in the midst of it. I don't know. I mean, yeah, we're always in the midst of something, but um winter really slows down i mean i i love farming in the winter um for many reasons but i do love it because i do get plenty of time to plan um and that's when we you know do our planting schedule for the next year and we talk about how things are going to change and um we get a lot more infrastructure stuff done and field cleaned up and so it, it definitely slows down for me. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we have plenty of time to plan and, and then it's, okay. I don't know. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, I, I, most, mostly I would agree with that. Um, I think the challenge is actually more, uh, remembering to implement those strategies once you're in the full swing of, of summer, yeah. it's easy to, conceptualize these things in the winter months when things are a little slower for us. And, you know, we don't have a lot of downtime in the winter. We're still pretty busy, but, um, but we definitely more time than this Mm -hmm. time of year, for instance. Uh, (laughs) and, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's easy at that time of year to say, here are some great ideas. Um, it's, it's much harder when you're in the swing of things and in the spring when it picks up and, and through the summer, um, to remember those strategies and to, uh, to do a great job of implementing them. Maybe we should switch it around. Maybe cause all summer we, we think about these things we need to do different. So maybe in the winter is when we should start implementing, implementing things. them. So then we're up and ready to go by 
We've already formed the habits. I like that idea. Huh. (laughs) I actually think it's, I think it's a really smart thing to do. I had some friends who ran a landscape nursery over in Northeast Iowa called, um, it was Willow Glen Nursery there in Decorah. And they, as soon as their heavy plant season was over in June, they would take a weekend and shut everything down and leave the nursery and go basically on a little mini vacation, but it was actually a formal business retreat. So they'd always go someplace fun so that they had something to look forward to in the evenings, but they'd spend the days working on what was going to be different while the paint, while the pain was fresh. And uh, (laughs) that was, that was the term that they used. You know, it was like, you got to do this. You got to do this when, when it's still fresh. Cause if you wait until December, it, it doesn't hurt as much. Everything anymore, feels you know, hunky-dory t- again, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think then they did a lot of times implement some of those strategies for how they were going to change things during the rest of the summer while those things could still happen yeah. rather than waiting until next spring. So something to think. I like it, Melissa. Oh, thanks. I think, I think, you're, I think you're right on track. So, you know, I, 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 I let you talk about, about February in the, in the high tunnel rotation, and then we completely went down <laughs> another, another track. So let's go back to we're planting greens in January. Mm-hmm. We're moving the tunnel in in March yep. and hoping that the beets don't bolt. Right. And and then what happens? Uh, again, we're going to plant things that we would plant in the regular growing season. Um, you know, a month and a half early again. Um, and uh, we're going to wait those things out until they are. Uh, until we're in the growing season. Um, and obviously they have a good deal of maturity on them by that time. So we're, we're a little time ahead on that. Um, and from, uh, from a practical standpoint and a financial standpoint, um, you know, I think everyone who is aware of, uh, high tunnels capabilities and, and usefulness recognizes that, um, you know, having a product at market at a time of year, when nobody else does is advantageous. Um, you can command a higher price clearly. Um, but what I actually really value about it is that beyond just selling those customers, that product, when nobody else has it, I'm building a relationship with those, those customers early on in that season. And even when we're into the main growing season and everybody has it, I'm already their farmer and they're going to keep coming back to me for it. Um, so it's that, you know, less tangible, uh, value of that early production that is, I think really, mm-hmm. really does it for us. Um, and then, uh, when those crops are ready to be outside, uh, we move the tunnel again. Um, and we're, we're growing warm weather, weather crops, uh, under the tunnel through the season, um, and crops that, uh, benefit from having rainfall kept off of them, like our tomatoes and our melons. Um, and we find that, uh, I think as most people do that we're able to control our, our yields and our, our quality, uh, much more effectively without the inconsistencies of rainfall, um, on a lot of those crops. Um, and our tomatoes go in a, a tunnel. Um, and then in the fall, uh, generally what has happened with us is we have ended up planting into, uh, into those hot weather crops where they were same plot, leaving the tunnel there, um, where we would like to be, um, at that time is into a fourth move, um, where we are, uh, moving the the tunnel onto a fall planting, um, and pushing that into the winter months, um, and then, uh, then beginning to plant in there 
the, the things we can grow straight through the winter, which are, you know, mostly cut greens and, and root crops. So, right. Okay. And are you guys doing the standard 30 inch bed layout in their 30 inch beds, 12 inch pads running the length of the greenhouse? Yep, exactly. We don't have 12 inch pads though. We have nine and a half inch pads. 11 and three quarters actually, but uh, that's because our wheels, uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's because our wheels take up a little space on the side of our tunnels. So yeah. Um, okay. You have to get really good at balance working on this farm. It's tight. Yeah. I would think that would be a little hard on the knees because you're, they'd always be bending the wrong direction mm-hmm. based on where, which way your feet were pointing. Either that yeah. or you have smaller feet than I do. Yeah. So, practically speaking, what really happens is the, the paths get a little wider, um, yeah. you know, as, as the, uh, as that plot location matures um, and we work those, those, those uh, rows from the pathway, they end up getting just a little wider. Um, and that's, that's all right with us. We're not, uh, we're not crazy uh, over the top about keeping our toes and our heels out of the beds. Mel's, yes, Mel's giving a dirty look right now. <laughs> <laughs> Some of those interns have big feet. I have to get onto them. <laughs> so, well, let's, and, so employees, you guys have interns on the farm mm-hmm. all year long or just during the summer? Usually we do. Um, basically, from the beginning, we've had two interns um, constantly and they tend to overlap. So um, it's not like we've always had a specific start and end date. Um, we, we like to kind of be flexible with that and make sure that we get the right interns at the right time. Um, But we've pretty much always had two people besides Adam and I on the farm. Um, And right now for the next two months, it's actually just going to be Adam and I, and then our farm manager who's been with us for two years. Um, And then we've got another intern that'll come on in October. So this is actually the first time I I haven't had any interns since we started. Um, But that was kind of deliberate as well, Um, just to kind of take a breath and reorganize some things that we have learned along those lines. Um, So yeah, and, and that seems to be a good amount of help. Although we also have lots of in our volunteers that come and go. So kind of from the beginning of the farm, the evolution of, of our use of labor and our access to labor. Um, when we started out, we were on wolf, um, and we hosted, Oh, quite a few wolfers in the first two years. Um, we also had the internship program, but it was, uh, it wasn't real developed yet. We hadn't um, really nailed down or figured out what, what that needed to look like um, to serve both parties in the best way it could. Um, And around year two, we decided that we weren't going to take short-term interns anymore. Um, Being a four season farm, uh, we feel like it's critical that uh, the people that are, are signing on for this see that full rotation, that full, uh, full four season rotation. Um, Because, you know, the goal of this program for us is obviously um, from the farm's perspective, um, having labor on the farm is, is a huge benefit. Um, but for them, our, our goal is that they either 
learn that they really want to be farmers or that they really don't want to be farmers. Um, and I think that, uh, that full four season rotation is critical in them, them coming to those realizations. Um, and then the person that we're looking for in that program, uh, kind of the poster child for the intern program, you know, we're looking for people who want to be farmers. Um, we're not looking for people who are looking for an experience on a farm. Um, we are looking for people who have goals of, uh, leaving our farm and continuing their education in agriculture or starting their own operation. Um, and so that's, you know, it's critical for them to see all aspects of the farm, uh, if, if that's going to be successful. Um, so at year two or so, we decided to stop accepting short-term interns and require that if, uh, if somebody wants to be an intern at the farm, um, they are signing on for a full year. Um, of course we don't hold people to that because we don't want people here who don't want to be here. Um, but we haven't had anybody back out yet. Um, and then, so yeah, three years of that, um, we've had what, uh, probably nine interns, eight, mm -hmm. eight interns over that okay. period of time. Um, and we've had three, three? I think who have yeah. moved on to start their own operation, which is very exciting for us and, and for them too. Um, and it's, you know, it's something that, uh, we feel is tremendously valuable because had we had that opportunity, um, it probably wouldn't have worked very well for us at the stage of life we were in when we started the farm. But, um, had we had the foresight, uh, to go be interns at a farm for a year before we started this, I think a lot of those, those mistakes that I've mentioned that, um, drag us down as far as efficiency goes now, uh, could have been avoided to a large degree. Um, yeah. And then of course, it's also been a unique opportunity in, in the first, the startup internships. Um, you know, these folks are coming on and boy, we, we really try and scare them off before we, uh, <laughs> before we bring them on. But, um, you know, they are, they're walking into a startup farm and, uh, on, you know, for some people, that's going to be a major turnoff. Um, some people want to go to a farm and see, super efficient systems that they can go implement on their own farms. Um, but for the most part, because we have been very transparent and open about that before people come on, I think they see it as an advantage to be able to see, you know, what it's really like starting a farm, um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. And then you mentioned that you had a farm manager as well. Mm -hmm. Now we do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Alyssa started with us as an intern, um, did her one year internship. Um, and you know, clearly, um, the other, the other positive outcome that could come from the internship program is, is being able to hire those people and keep them around when we come across a, a real jewel. Um, and Alyssa is definitely that, um, she, uh, like I said, was with us for a year and she's the type of person who, is a clear self-starter, has great ideas, um, can really contribute to, uh, the forward movement of the farm, um, both in, uh, ideology and, and, uh, just labor contribution, um, and organizational skills as well. Um, and so we're, we're doing the very best we can to hold on to her. Um, we, uh, we don't pay her anywhere close to what she's worth yet. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that's another motive in becoming more efficient and, and 
causing the farm to generate more income um, is being able to keep quality people like like her around. Right. Yeah, because that makes a big difference having good help it on the sure farm. It sure does. Oh. All right. And then I, I wanted to ask a quick question about the chickens and ducks on the farm before we <laughs> before we duck into our lightning round here. So um, you guys have critters we do. in the city. We have critters in the city. Um, well, we, first of all, the ducks. They just live they just here because they want. They, yeah, we have. City, city ordinances don't allow for ducks, but you know, if a duck just happens to land in your water garden, um, <laughs> they just what, what are you going to do about yeah. that? What are you going to do about it? Uh, these ducks can't fly, but I, yeah, I'm not sure how they got here. Um, <laughs> and then the chickens are, uh, yeah, they're. Yeah. And that's a new ordinance, uh, within the last three years of Springfield, two or three years. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and they're more our pets than anything. I mean, they give us enough eggs for our family and a couple others, but, um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're not, more, they're not really a financial contributor no. for us. In fact, yeah. they probably cost us money. They uh, probably do. <laughs> Most expensive eggs you've ever That's eaten. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And then we have our bees. So, Absolutely. oh, okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. And that's also something that we used to just have bees that lived in the boxes at the back of the farm. But, uh, this time, <laughs> this time last year, um, city council got it together and, and, uh, approved bees, um, in the city and recognized that, uh, you know, those, those honeybees, they're, they're all over our urban environments. Um, really all we're doing is giving them a good, well-managed home. Um, and in fact, uh, most of our bees, um, all of our bees, we also have a, a friend who keeps some bees over here. Um, all of our bees have come from feral, feral, uh, swarms. So, um, and that's something we feel really strongly about. Um, we, uh, we want to nab those feral swarms every chance we get because, uh, because of the nature of when bees swarm and why they swarm, uh, odds are very good that these bees have proven themselves, um, in our region. And, uh, and we want to encourage those genetics. So, um, in the springtime, we get a few calls usually per season and, uh, I go out with a hive box and box them up and bring them back to the farm and, and give them a new home. So we did actually have a swarm just come to the farm this spring, which was awesome. And I, we were, <laughs> I think that farm, that, that swarm probably came out of one of Jeff's hives, but, oh, but we'll, we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> We won't tell Jeff That's though, right? right? So. <laughs> All right. So you guys ready for the lightning round? Sure. sure. No. Uh, <laughs> All right. All right. So, okay. So Mel, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Mm, I knew you were going to ask this. So, this is very hard for me because I'm out there all the time and using so many different tools. But if I, I can't really pick just one, but I, I did narrow it down to two. <laughs> um, and one of them is a new tool this year. It's a flail mower that attaches to our walk behind tractor. Um, and I'm absolutely in love with this thing. Um, and then the second tool, which I know is going to sound really cheesy, 
crazy, but is Adam because he doesn't <laughs> come out to the field that often this year. But so if something breaks down, I'm out there, Alyssa and I, we're doing our best. We're trying to figure it out. And sometimes when we do figure it out, you know, it's great. And then other times we have to go get the Adam and he'll come down and of course <laughs> fix it. Um, so you know, that's, that's what I could come up with. It, it, that's a hard question, but <laughs> that's why I like to ask it. Adam, after, after that, I'm not going to ask you what your favorite tool is, because if you said anything other than Melissa, um, I don't think things would be going so well for you. So, so Adam, what's the last book that you read? Um, well, I'm actually currently reading the soil will save us. Um, and yeah, really, really enjoying that. Um, but I would say the last one that has really informed um, informed our uh, processes, I think, on the farm is um, Jean-Martin Fortier's uh, Market Gardener. Yeah. Um, that was one I got turned on to in the spring and, and got pretty excited about. Um, I think he has some really great... Uh, weed management, um, tips in there and when, and we're definitely in need of that. So. All right. Mel, the weirdest thing that's happened on your farm. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's a good wow. one. Urban farm. <laughs> How did I forget about this question? <laughs> um, Cause we just added it in this week. Oh, okay. <laughs> the weirdest thing. Um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, which really isn't that weird, because trust me, there have been some scary weird things, but this is a pretty weird thing. Um, there's this old lady, Miss Diana, lived in one of the apartments when we bought the farm. Um, she lived in number six and she you know, was kind of forgotten about. She'd sit on her doorstep. She lived there for years before we bought the place. And then when we bought the place, she'd always come outside and she wouldn't say too much. And if she did, she was probably pretty grumpy about it. And she'd just sit and watch us clean the field and get rid of trash and watched us build this this farm in front of her and quickly fell in love with us and our kids. And in the beginning, um, she would start buying candy and give it to her kids. We should say that just because she fell in love with us didn't make her any less grumpy. No, she was a very <laughs> grumpy old lady. Very grumpy old lady. But in the beginning, she would always um, give the children candy every day. And so they got into the habit of like right after breakfast, let's run down and see what Miss Diana's doing, you know. And uh, without me ever saying anything to her, the candy quickly turned into buying blueberries or raspberries or oranges or bananas. And she'd make these little baggies of like healthy snacks for the kids. And, you know, this was a old woman on oxygen that was a diabetic and, you know, probably. Yeah. I mean, her income was very limited. Um, she could definitely buy a bag of Tootsie Pops. Yeah. A lot cheaper than she could buy a box of blueberries. Yeah. Um, but I think just seeing what we were about um, unfolding before her eyes, uh, you know, she, she recognized that and uh, decided to participate yeah. in it. And we never, ever had to have that conversation with her at all. And, and I think, you know, 
the other aspect to that is it was an experience to for me to sit back and watch what community building does. Um, and she also one day got mad at one of the neighbors because they threw a bag of trash over the fence fence that landed into our field, which was fairly typical of the households that surround the farm in the beginning. And uh, she ran right over there and grabbed that bag of trash. And she's only like four feet tall and threw it over the privacy fence and yelled at them and told them (laughs) to keep their trash off the farm. And she said, that doesn't fly anymore. (laughs) Great. So yeah, weird, but sweet, weird. I like it. I like it. Adam, your favorite crop to grow? Um, ooh, to grow or to eat? (laughs) To grow. Um, I think kohlrabi. Um, yeah, we, uh, primarily because I just love introducing people to that weird little vegetable, um, a little Sputnik, uh, you know, when it's on the table at market, it's a major attention getter. Um, it's not terribly difficult to grow here. Um, usually we come out with a really nice looking, uh, nice looking bulb and, um, yeah, people, it's an awesome conversation starter at market. People walk up and, and even if they're not addressing me, they may be saying to the the person with them, what the heck is that? And that's my opportunity to step in and say, Hey, if you promise to eat that, I will send one home with you today. Um, you come back and tell me what you think of it. And, uh, you know, they almost always take me up on it and they almost always come back and buy another one. So. <laughs> Melissa, the last purely recreational activity you undertook. <laughs> oh, uh, whitewater the other day, I guess. <laughs> All right. Good. Good. <laughs> we like to ride our bikes, but yeah, whitewater was my day off the farm. We, the kids went back to school this week. So that was our last little, uh, last hurrah. So it's great. And then for, um, for Adam, what farmer superpower would you choose? Oh man. Uh, time management has to be it without a doubt. Um, yeah. I mean, if I, I am not a fantastic time manager and, um, just, just wasn't made that way. Um, even, even when I try, it doesn't work out that well. Um, so yeah, if I had the ability to, uh, to be able to look out there, see what needed to be done and, um, actually execute it in the, uh, in the, in the order and in, in the timely fashion that it needs to be executed in, that would be, uh, that'd make all the difference in the world. And then I'll ask this of both of you and you can either answer it together or one at a time. But if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer selves one thing, what would it be? Mm. Oh, those weeds. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I think probably mine would have been to work on a farm, spend some time on, you know, I, I did help my brother-in-law in his greenhouse, but I, I needed to spend more time in a production field. Um, I'm a pretty quick learner. So it's, and I'm extremely, I'm kind of a workaholic. So it's, it's worked out for me to do what I'm doing. However, I'm not a patient person. So, um, that makes farming challenging. So I think if I could go back, start all over again and spend a little time on the production end, 
I would do that. All right. Mel and Adam, thank you guys so much for taking the time to do this interview today. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Chris. We are really digging the podcast. We uh, we devour them. And I think they're an awesome resource for for farmers, especially in the startup phase. So Yeah. You know, I just, I'll, I'll just say it and I, I feel like a broken record sometimes, but the, the podcast doesn't happen without people like you guys taking the time to, uh, to put in an hour and a half and do an interview. Uh, oftentimes in the middle of the week, we're here on Monday morning, uh, pulling this off in the middle of your day. So thank you so much for that. It's it, like I say, it it doesn't happen without people like you. It's our pleasure. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 28 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Millsap with two L's. That's M-I-L-L-S-A-P. We'll have pictures of the anchors that Adam and Mel used to hold their high tunnels in place, as well as an overhead picture of the farm's layout. I want to mention a great resource for you to listen to the podcast. I'm a fanatic about using proper ear protection when driving the tractor, running the rototiller, or operating a weed whip, but I love the world of audio, so I spent a lot of time a number of years ago looking for a way to listen to my MP3 player. You know, back before smartphones, we had these MP3 players, right? And the best solution I've found is the Peltor 2600N noise isolating earbuds. They do a great job of keeping the loud noises out and letting the good sounds in, and because they stick right in my ear instead of going over my head like on-ear protectors, I can still wear my Shady Brady straw hat while I'm protecting my hearing. Plus, if you go through farmer to farmer podcast.com slash earbuds to get a pair, it helps to support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmer to farmer podcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review or make a comment on the show notes or tell your friends about us on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. And one more thing, if you've hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you, my listener, have that my guests or I might be able to answer on the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on farmer farmerpodcastcom Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know and I won't mention your name on air. If we choose to use your question on air, I'll even send you a Farmer to Farmer podcast mug. Keep weathering the weather, be safe out there, and keep the tractor running.